0: Our Bible Fellowship Days here are carefully and prayerfully planned. I always begin organising this event by selecting a theme, one that I believe our church and the wider Christian community will benefit from. After I've settled on the right theme, I commence looking for the right preachers to expand upon the selected topic. And I don't believe that just any preacher will do in the case of our present Bible Fellowship Day, these faithful men were selected because I believe that their lives exhibit what it means to abide in Christ. And ordinarily, I would not preach on a Bible Fellowship Day. In fact, I think this may be the first time I have preached on a Bible Fellowship Day. And the reason for that is I would much rather you here, as our church, from other men of much greater knowledge of the word, Christian experience and practical spirituality, I had approached a number of people about preaching this particular message on this particular theme, this final topic today, but none were able to attend. And in discussion with my wife, I said, I'm looking for someone who leads a busy life, someone who may serve in the ministry, but also has to work and balance life, church, family, etc. Needs to be someone who doesn't necessarily have it all together, but is striving to abide in Christ in the busyness of life. And as best I remember it, my wife smiled and said, well, what about you? So here I am. You can blame my wife. No. So this this afternoon, as we come to a close, I'd like us to look specifically at abiding in Christ in the busyness of life. Heavenly Father, uh, we have spent much time in your word and what a blessing it has been to be uh, around your word in your word discussing your word uh, thank you for the preachers that have gone before and laid such a wonderful foundation for this practical topic that we look at now i pray you would cause uh, our minds to be engaged yet again for this final time together thank you for all that has already happened and we pray that you would be glorified that you would give to us uh, blessing and encouragement and challenge Uh, as we uh, partake together of the spiritual food prepared uh, for the Lord Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Amen. Abiding in Christ in the busyness of life. Before we get to the text, before we look at a specific area this afternoon, I would like to make some assertions, uh, some declarations, if you like, some facts that are really important regarding this particular subject. Uh, And I've got five of them here, and we'll quickly just discuss them for a moment before we look at a particular text. They're quite misunderstood concepts, perhaps, in Christianity today. The first thing that I just want to make an assertion about is that busyness is not sinfulness. Busyness is not sinfulness. Some Christians operate with the thought that if you're busy at work or ministry, that you've somehow inverted God's order And that's simply not true. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, the disciples, the prophets, almost every biblical character you can think of were busy people, working hard. Busyness in and of itself is not wrong. And that's important for us to understand as we move into this message. Busyness is not sinfulness. Secondly, second assertion is that tiredness is not sinfulness. Surprise! there's not an amen in the room, but that's okay. Tiredness is not sinfulness. Some equate tiredness with sinfulness. This too is simply not true. Our saviour grew weary. John 4 verse 6. The great soldier and leader of Israel, as his hands were raised in the battle, his arms grew weary, so much so that men came along to hold them up. In Exodus 17 verse 12. Many others in the biblical account experienced tiredness. In fact, I would say that tiredness is created by God to remind us of our weakness, to drive us to continued dependence upon Him. But tiredness of itself is not sinfulness. Number three: assertion number three: busyness is sinfulness when it stems from a heart of independence. Busyness is sinfulness when it stems from a heart of independence and in brackets we might say simply pride. Uh, If you were here last week with us uh, on Sunday, I preached from James chapter 4 and you'll remember that in that particular time, James writes to Jewish Christians spread all over the place and what they were doing was advancing their own agendas in buying and selling and leaving God out of the picture. And the Bible says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. James 4, 15 and 16. And we learn in that that busyness in our own independence and our own agendas is sinfulness. It's important for us to note again as we commence in this matter of busyness. So thirdly, busyness is sinfulness. When it stems from a heart of independence. In other words, outside of God's will. Doing my own thing. And being busy about it. Number four. Assertion number four. Busyness is sinfulness when anxiety replaces peace. Busyness is sinfulness when anxiety replaces peace. Worry. Anxiety. A disquieted heart. Fear. Fear. And a lack of peace are all characteristic of a life that is not resting in God alone. Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the fulfillment of that is the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. So busyness is sinfulness. Sinfulness. When it comes from a heart of independence, it's sinfulness when anxiety replaces peace. And lastly, don't get excited, lastly in the introduction, I should say, (laughs) number five, assertion, busyness is sinfulness when it is liturgical or ritualistic. And we've heard about that all morning. Uh, My brother Adrian has taken us through, in fact, he stole a number of my points. I've had to rewrite some things here. Thank you very much. But we realise that it is when it becomes liturgy, ritual, religious activity, without the motive, busyness then is sinfulness. And I don't think there's a better place in scripture. We're not going to turn there. But to illustrate, this is the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. This was a doctrinally sound church. They were refuting evil. They were enduring great persecution. They were withstanding false teaching and were intolerant, the Bible says, towards everything that was evil. However, for all their external uprightness, there was a fundamental flaw in the heart. They had left that vibrant, motivating love for Christ, which existed at the beginning. In other words, they were going through the motions the liturgical fashion because of their love for Christ having waned. Busyness and ministry and service is sinful when it springs from a heart that is less than full of love for Christ. Which is prim- primarily what Adrian was saying earlier. Jesus calls Ephesus to repent as he does us in Revelation 2 verses 4 to 5. We could say many, many other things about trying to get this understanding of busyness into perspective. But... Rather than take too much more time to clarify different assertions, I want to move to the main point for us this afternoon. And that main point is this, Christ's response to busyness. Who else ought we to look at? To me, as I studied this out, I looked at various people. I looked at Mary and Martha. I looked at Moses. I looked at Elijah. I looked at all of these other wonderful saints of yesteryear, but I could not get away from how the Lord Jesus dealt with busyness. So turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And there is a bit of a download of information coming. So uh, get your minds ready. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get prepared. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. The Bible says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Verse 22, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick For that is why I came out and he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. I believe that Mark chapter 1 verses 21 to 39 record the busiest 24 hours in the life of Jesus Christ. Let me summarize for you. The day immediately preceding this text, the Lord Jesus selected Simon Andrew, James and John to be his disciples, verses 16 to 20, just before this day. On this particular day that we begin with in verse 21, the Sabbath, Jesus and his newly chosen disciples enter the synagogue where Jesus teaches. Now, lest we flippantly pass over this fact... Medical practitioners tell us today that a 30 to 40 minute sermon has the same physical toll on the human body as an eight hour day in the workplace. Poor Adrian has done 16 hours of work already. Those of us who have ever preached know this to be a reality. But it's a little bit different when perhaps you go to the synagogue and the average teaching time is between three and four hours of time. And it's very possible that the Lord Jesus in teaching on this day spent two, three, four hours in teaching the people. Unless we forget, we believe and we know in what we call the hypostatic union, that is that we have the God man. He is fully God, fully man. However, in that, sometimes we minimize his humanity and we forget that he is subject to tiredness. He is subject to those aspects of humanity that we all are, except, of course, sin. And here is a man who has been teaching. Then we find that Jesus rebukes and removes an unclean spirit from a man in the synagogue in verse 25. And although we can't be certain about what I'm about to say now, some theologians have suggested that every miracle and power performing feat accomplished by the Lord Jesus was also accompanied by physical strength reductions. What do I mean? I mean, being God in the flesh meant that all the power of the Godhead was at his disposal. But being man meant that all aspects of humanity, including weariness, were also felt. I can't say for certain that when the Lord Jesus performed a miracle, that there was some kind of physical reduction in his strength and power. But it is interesting in Mark chapter 5, when we read about a woman with an issue of blood, the Bible tells us that power had gone out of him and he felt that. What that looks like, I don't know. And I'm not prepared to say that the Lord Jesus in some way was physically reduced. I can't say that for certain in his physical healing ministry. But it wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me. So he has taught. He has now healed. And then we find that he enters Simon and Andrew's house where Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever in verses 29 and 30. By the way, that means that Simon Peter had a mother-in-law which means that he also had a wife, which means that everything you've ever learned about papal authority is incorrect. Okay, The Pope did not begin with Simon Peter and the celibacy it contained within, that is not true, unless he is a very unfortunate man to have a mother-in-law without a wife. Simon Peter, his mother-in-law, is sick with a fever and the Lord Jesus enters into that home, remains there and heals her. Having become a celebrity in that very day, the same day, Jesus is now confronted towards the end of that day when the sun begins to set with a multitude of people who are bringing their sick and demon-possessed to be made whole. We don't know how long Jesus spent with all these people, but suffice to say, this was a big day. In summary, the Lord Jesus commences his ministry with the new disciples These are green, fresh disciples. He's taught in the synagogue. He's freed a man from an unclean spirit. He's raised Peter's mother in law from a bed of illness. And now he has mingled with the whole city of Capernaum, healing myriads of people. I believe it's safe to say the Lord Jesus was weary on this day. What is his response to this 24 hour of strength depleting work? Does he sit down with his disciples for a movie night? Does he take the next day off and enjoy a well-deserved sleep in? Does he take some annual leave or a sabbatical? And yes, we're being facetious. The answer is no, he does not. In verse 35, which will be the main portion of our text here, it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there... He prayed. For a few moments there, I thought Pastor Vesley was going to take my message. I, was, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. <laughs> if we're going to learn what it means to abide in Christ, in the busyness of life, isn't it essential that we see what the God-man did, as our example, in the busyness of his life and his ministry? And so... With our main point being Christ's response to busyness, I have a number of sub points, no surprise there, church, number of sub points for us to look at. And the first thing that I want us to see here in verse 35 is the priority of worship or communion, whichever word you prefer. The priority of worship and communion. Interestingly enough, Adrian said something earlier and I thought, I'm going to be in real trouble later. He said, you know, he he knew a preacher who said, you know, you have to be up at a certain time every morning. I am not about to say that, but I want us to see a pattern here. And I don't want to offend my brother Adrian. He does get up early in the morning because it's two or three in the morning when he goes to bed. So it's early in the morning. But I do want us to see the priority of worship or communion as seen in the Lord Jesus' life. I'm not saying you must rise up early necessarily. I'm not saying that is a command, but I am suggesting that in the scripture, there's a wonderful pattern here. And it has profound benefit in the life of a Christian. Not everyone is a morning person. I realize that. But there is something to be said for beginning your day with God. Many believers in the Bible and in history have demonstrated the value of rising early to be with the Lord. The author of Psalm 119, I believe that psalm to be written by Ezra. He says, I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I wait for your words. Elkanah and Hannah. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 1:19, they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Hezekiah, the king and the officials of the city rose early and went to the house of the Lord in 2 Chronicles 29:20. The Bible speaks of Job as one who rose early in the morning offering burnt sacrifice. And this he did continually, Job 1.5 says. In Genesis 19.27, we read that Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Martin Luther was a busy man. He wrote, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Joseph Aline one man whose uh, life and ministry I appreciate so much. He lived from 1633, excuse me, yeah, 1633 to 1668. He was a nonconformist pastor who spent his life teaching and writing many books. He would rise early to engage in private worship between 4am and 8am. His wife said... He would be much troubled if he heard smiths or other craftsmen at work at their trades before he was at communion with God. Saying to me often, she writes, how this noise shames me. Doth not my master deserve more than theirs? Samuel Rutherford rose at 3 a.m. each day for private worship and meditation. Again, I want to make sure we understand, again, this is not a list based thing. I'm speaking of priority, not time. I'm not speaking of priority. You must get up at five, four, three or whatever in line with these people. What I'm saying is making it a priority to be with God at whatever time that may be. And it may not be the first thing, but I am suggesting that in Scripture there's a wonderful pattern of it being the first thing. And I'll explain in my own personal walk in just a moment how that has helped. My life as I prepared this message... And I don't share, I guess, a great deal about these sort of things, but at a time like this, it seems appropriate. My life can be broken up into the following divisions. I'm a husband, pastor, a business owner, a friend, or some people might think that, hopefully, a sports enthusiast. That pretty much summarises my life, if you like. And I did some, did some maths to have a bit of a look. I heard that, Mum. Of the 168 hours that God gives to us each week, 47 of them, according to my new Fitbit, are spent sleeping on average. My direct one-on-one time with my wife, without distraction, key word there, without distraction, is approximately 22 hours per week. I spend 55 hours per week working in my business. My limited role as pastor-teacher demands a minimum of 25 to 30 hours per week. Time spent with friends or engaged in sports and leisure are between 10 and 14 hours per week. It's a busy life. And by the way, these things that I'm saying here are not to in any way elevate my situation at all. In fact, if anything, it's to demonstrate my failure in abiding as I ought to. But my day begins when I do the right thing at 5am with a jog and some exercise. By 6 a.m. I have showered and I'm ready to sit down with my Bible and study and pray for about an hour and a half. I eat breakfast sometimes, have devotions with my wife and then head to work for about 10 hours. I come home for dinner and then spend some time with Jessica before going to bed at around 10 p.m. So why are you saying all of that? I'm saying all of that for this reason. Sometimes I fail in this early morning discipline. And after a while, my personal testimony is this. My heart grows cold. My heart becomes apathetic and indifferent towards the Lord. I become discouraged and I turn inward. The busyness of life takes its toll and my personal reservoirs of strength are depleted. And instead of drawing from the wells of God's immense power, I begin to trust in my own strength And we all know the result of that foolish choice. The man Jesus Christ rises before dawn to pray and commune with God after the busiest day recorded in scripture in his life, as I can see it. I believe this gives us an indication not of the time and not of when and how, but of the priority of it. And my goal in this message is for us to realise the priority of this practicality. How important it not for ritual sake, not for ritual sake, but for relationship, for abiding in Christ. And because my personal testimony in my own life proves the fact that when I don't, when I don't make it a priority, when I don't seek to be disciplined in it, I grow apathetic. But at the same time, let me say this to us at this point, when I fail to do it, it reminds me again of why I am doing it. Because sometimes I can get through the motions of 5am, 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 and after a while I'm just doing it for the sake of doing it. And then when I mess up, it's then that I feel my heart begin to realise how important it is for my relationship, not for my ritual. So failure in it isn't necessarily failure on one level. It's helpful sometimes. And so we see that the Lord Jesus made this communion a priority, this time of worship. But I want you to see also here in verse 35, secondly, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. It was a, secondly, a distraction free place of worship. He departed and went into a desolate place. We're not told in the text here where the Lord Jesus spent the night, but very likely it was at Simon's mother-in-law's home with the disciples that night. It had been an evening of commotion the night before. The whole city, the Bible says, had gathered together to see the Lord Jesus perform miracles. I did a quick search and I found that historians tell us that at least 1,500 people resided in Capernaum at this time. And it says his fame had spread out to the regions of Galilee. There's a lot of people that he has ministered to the night before. Now, I'm going to be honest and say when I minister on a Sunday here with 30 or 40 people, I go home and rest. I couldn't imagine 1,500 or 2,000 people that he is having direct interaction with. So many people, so many needs, so much noise in Capernaum, Simon's mother-in-law's home. The night before. When Jesus arose the following morning, he left the house, he left the disciples, he left whoever else was staying at that abode at the time, and he went intentionally to a solitary, desolate place to be alone and to pray. I believe there is something to be said of a distraction free place of meditation and worship. In fact, the Bible tells us on numerous occasions that the Lord Jesus went into mountains and desert places to pray to his heavenly father. In fact, in Luke 5 and verse 15 and 16, we read this amazing verse. But now even more, the report about him, that's Jesus went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Again, not to make it uh, about my own life, but that's the illustrations that I have because I know this reality in my own life. I want to just talk about mountain experiences in the hope corner. Last year, many of you know, I went through a particularly difficult time. Some of you who are here have been very, very helpful in helping me come out of that. I was overwhelmed in the ministry. I was drawing upon my own strength came to the point of total despair. God graciously met me in my time of dire need and distress and again saved me from myself. The very first decision that I made after revival had taken place in my heart, having been in a little lodge at Elkanah where Terry and Julie are, was to come home and establish what I have called to this day the Hope Corner. And the Hope Corner is a little place in my living room, which is specifically designed for spiritual worship. It sits next to a window which looks out towards the front yard. A beautiful picture hangs in the center of the room with the following words on it. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46 verse 10. The Hope Corner has a small white desk upon which my Bible, a lamp, my prayer book and some pens and paper reside. Above the desk... Right in front of my face when I look up is a painting, a depiction of Martin Luther. That moment when he first read Romans one seventeen, that says the just shall live by faith. And it's an encouraging, a hopeful corner. This hope corner is my mountain. It is a technology free zone where God and I meet for communion, recalibration, worship and prayer before deployment into the busyness of that day. Now, I want to be careful. I don't believe that God is calling us all to mountains and to deserts and to desolate places and to boats, various other places in Scripture where he resided. But I do believe, Christian, that we need to find a distraction-free place to worship. A place where there isn't the noise of everyday life, where there isn't the distractions of this and that going on, so that we can be with God alone. And may I also insert at this point, this is not time with somebody else, this is time with the Lord and me. This is not time with my spouse. That's a different thing. This is not time with my children. That's a different thing. This is time with my heart before the Lord, one-on-one, intimate abiding. Because the only way, especially men in the room, the only way as husbands and fathers and leaders in our household that we are ever going to be able to lead as we ought to and help them to abide in Christ is if we ourselves have been energised by the connection. That's the only way because there is very little point in me doing morning devotions with uh, my wife or others unless I myself have fed on the word. How important it is for us to personally spend time with the Lord in maybe whatever you call your hope corner. But I encourage you to do that. The Lord Jesus made it a priority to worship. He also chose a distraction free zone. The third thing I want us to see is the essential element Of prayer in worship. And we've had an excellent exposition of this matter of prayer from Brother Ernie. When the Lord Jesus retreated to the mountains and solitary places, it was not simply to have a break. Now, personal confession, I often want a break from people. This is not what this is. This is not the Lord Jesus saying, That was a big day. Love to spend some time alone now without all of these people. Although that was the case. He wasn't with them. That wasn't the point. This isn't the Lord Jesus ascending to the highlands of that day to get some me time or to get some headspace, as we say. He went there with a purpose, and that was to commune with his heavenly father in prayer. That was the point. That was the purpose Personal confession this morning, afternoon, evening, whatever it is. I find prayer really hard. I find it hard. I find preaching easy. I find preaching out on the street, no problem. Out there, charisma, personality, no problem whatsoever. Easy. I find study enjoyable fun exciting and you've seen and heard the things that go on in my office when I study I have a great time I find prayer hard I find prayer really hard I have incredible admiration for men and women who are men and women of prayer I read of the F.B. Myers and the George Muellers and I say Lord I want to be like that I want to be like them. I want to be like the Lord Jesus. I want to be like old camel knees. I want to be like these men and these women who have prayed and want to. And I find so often in my heart, I just don't want to. I don't want to. It's hard work. And I admire and I am amazed at the Lord Jesus after such a massive day, after all the outworkings of ministry and service and people. What does he want to do? He doesn't want to just take it easy. He wants to commune with his heavenly father. And I am ashamed to say so often that is not the case in my own heart. And I am amazed and in awe of this. But I need to ask this question, and Pastor Ernie has already answered it in some ways. What is prayer? What is prayer? And uh, some of you who've been around for a little while in our church will know that we came up with a definition some years ago, and that is that prayer is our heartfelt dependence upon God expressed. Our heartfelt dependence upon God expressed. What do we mean by that? We mean that it's not just words out in the air. We're saying it's the heart, it's sincere, and it's that which is dependent upon God and expressed i believe that to be a good definition for prayer but this is what i find many try to install a daily regiment of prayer which is what adrian was talking about before and they hope that this will provide the passion and the zeal and so forth to get this practice into into going however these noble intentions will often bring about greater despair Because we try and we fail, we try and we fail, and it's not changing and it's not happening. And here's what I've come to understand in my own struggles with prayer. Don't practice prayer, practice dependence. What do I mean by that? I mean in everything in life, practice dependence. I'm dependent, oh Lord, on you for this next breath. I am dependent on you, Lord, for every aspect of my salvation. I'm dependent all the time. You are everything. As I practice dependence, the natural outworking of my heart is to praise and give thanks to the Lord. Prayer is far more about thanksgiving than it is about request, in my opinion. Prayer is about recognising who God is and as I share that with him, he knows all that, but as I share that with him, as I talk to him about his holiness and his goodness and his justice and his righteousness and I recognise my dependence upon him, I am right now in the midst of prayer. And thankfulness proceeds from that and faith and trust and so forth. Don't practice prayer as much as you practice dependence And as Ernie said, prayer will be the natural response of a Christian who is confronted with their utter dependence upon God. When I realise how much I need him, when I realise that every single thing in this life requires his power, requires his help, I become dependent upon him and prayer becomes the natural response. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, submitted himself to his heavenly father and he gave us an important pattern to follow. Let me ask us this question. If in the busyness of Christ's earthly life, he spent time in prayer, how important is it for us to do the same? We could spend much time on that. But let's move on to the final point for us this afternoon as we talk about this matter of how Christ responded to busyness and how then we can. And we see he made it a priority. We see it's a distraction-free place. We see the essential element of prayer and worship. And the last thing that I'd like us to see is perseverance in the busy mission assigned. I think it's interesting that when we get to verses 38 and 39 of our text in Mark chapter 1, we read here of the Lord Jesus. He said to them who had come looking for him, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Busyness is not the enemy. The enemy is attempting to fulfill our mission in our own strength. That's the enemy. You see, having made worship and communion a priority, Jesus continues to fulfill the Father's calling by returning to service. Empowered for service. He has spent time with his heavenly Father. He's communed and he doesn't stay there. There are some who would have us say, you know what, we should just be studying all day long. Let's forget our jobs. Let's forget everything else we're doing. That's not the calling. That's not the calling at all. The calling is, yes, make Christ a priority. Seek those things which are above. All of that. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Those are reality. But then we also need to get back to doing what we're called to do. Service. The outworking. Busyness and service for Christ is driven and sustained by rich times of worship with God in private. Here's an interesting thought for you to think about. Jesus often negotiated the mountains and the deserts for times of prayer, but he always returned to continue the ministry that he was assigned by his heavenly Father. There's a very important lesson here. Many of us want to stay on Mount Hermon with Peter, James and John and with the Lord Jesus and Elijah and Moses. Many of us say, let's just stay up there. This is great. This is wonderful. And it is. It's a glimpse of heaven and we see incredible things up on the mountaintop. And so we ought to. But the Lord Jesus wouldn't let them stay. We must go back down to the valley. We must go back down to the place of service. Pastor Vesley almost stole another point of mine earlier. It's not good going last. I'm going to change this next time. Our concentrated times of worship ought to be reflected in our daily lives. Adrian was talking about meditation. And it's not the length of the study. It's not the, I've spent all this time in the Greek and the Hebrew this morning and I've done this and that. It's not that. That's not what we're talking about here. But the concentrated times, whether that concentrated time is a five-minute time because it just, everything's just so full-on, but it's a concentrated time with God alone. It ought to be and will be reflected in our daily life. Figuratively, we should be like Moses, whose face glowed. Now, we're not looking around looking for glowing faces But the radiance of God's glory should be in our life and on our face. We have spent time with him. Is that not what happened when they brought the disciples together and they said, you are not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. And they took note that they had been with Jesus. The world ought to take note that we have been with Jesus. The world ought to see fellow believers ought to see that we've spent time in private with Christ. I want to reiterate the importance of making this practical time with the Lord a priority. Not, again, for ritual sake, but with the motive that I love God, I want to be with Him. I want to spend time with him. I want to bathe in the sunlight of his glory and I want it reflected in my life. And as I look at it, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says, the more I look at this, the more I am being changed from glory to glory, even so by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God will change us as I concentrate. And you know the reality of this, this is a wonderful little phrase, what you concentrate on, you will conform to. If you concentrate on the culture, it will not be long before you become like the culture. If you focus on the world, you will be worldly. That's the way it works. If we concentrate on Christ, we will be Christ-like. And is that not the call? Is that not what Romans uh, tells us in that glorious passage of chapter 8, verse 29, that we would be conformed to the image of his Son? That's the point. Abiding in Christ that we might be like Christ. And so, in closing, here's a summary, if you like, of how I can abide in Christ in the busyness of life. Number one, establish a pattern of worship. Christian, if you haven't got a pattern of worship, establish one. Not because you have to, or the preacher says, but because you want to. If you don't know how to, come talk to me. Talk to one of the pastors. How can I have a quiet time? I don't know what to do. I'm a new Christian. Let's talk about it. Let me show you perhaps some passages you could begin to meditate on. Establish a pattern of worship. Number two, engage in private, distraction-free worship. Make this a reality, engaging in the private, distraction-free worship. And number, th- number three... Employ prayer as an essential part of worship. Employ prayer as an essential part of worship. And then the last thing is endure the busyness of life by means of regular worship. I know for myself that when I do not do this, when I begin to move away and my personal life disciplines change, my love begins to wane for the Lord and I don't do this, that I cannot continue because I am going in my own strength. Establish a pattern of worship. Engage in private, distraction-free worship. Employ prayer as an essential part of worship. Endure the busyness of life by means of regular worship. See Austin Miles' wonderfully depicts the pleasantness of private worship with Christ and he writes this all familiar text. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear the Son of God discloses and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there None other has ever known. He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet. The birds hush their singing. And the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing. And he walks with me and he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. I'd stay in the garden with him, wouldn't we? I'd stay in the garden with him, though the night around me be falling, but he bids me go through the voice of woe. His voice to me is calling and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. There is something to be said of personal joy private, abiding in Christ and doing it regularly, not out of ritual, but out of relationship, out of connection, out of communion. May God help us to do just that in the busyness of life. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we have spent together. Thank you for this day. What a a blessing it has been, certainly to my own heart. Thank you for the preaching we've heard. Thank you for Uh, The the great level of knowledge and information that has been imparted to us from your word, it will take much time to digest, but we're thankful for what we've heard. Oh, Lord, help us to come away from today with a renewed passion for you, a greater desire to abide in Christ, that you would be our priority, that we would uh, have all of those elements of ritualism and legalism and uh, seeking to please others with our Uh, our actions and our deeds stripped from us, Uh, and that, Lord, you would help us to see the all-important aspect of personal, private worship with you uh, that provides the strength uh, and the thoughts to meditate upon throughout our days and throughout the busyness of our lives. May we live for your glory. May it be true of uh, our lives what the Apostle Paul said, for to me to live is Christ. And if I die, I gain. May we please you with that which we do with our lives uh, for your service. uh, Lord, for your glory, for our good. And we thank you for what you're doing in us and for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.